This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also access at cortezcurrents.ca. Dr. Chelsea Geralda Armstrong is the lead author of a paper about the ancient forest gardens and orchards in New Chelneth Territory, which is being published by the Journal of Archaeological Science. While individual species do grow in the wild, forest gardens and orchards require a sophisticated understanding of cultivation and are found adjacent to ancient village sites. In a related study, Armstrong and her colleagues wrote that forest gardens largely disappeared around the time of the smallpox epidemic that swept through BC's indigenous communities more than 150 years ago. I have some other research that was published even last year about forest gardens in Simshian territory and Coast Salish territory. So there's all sorts of answers I could give. Nancy Turner, Dana Lepofsky, and I wrote a recent paper on transplanting. And what we conclude is that there's about 15 or 16 plants that grow throughout BC that are in many cases probably the result of ancient transplanting or historical transplanting events. What we do is look at multiple lines of evidence. Phytogeography would be one, plants growing where they shouldn't be. We look at archaeological records, so plants showing up in the archaeological record where they're not actually growing in that area at all. Do you have any data from the Discovery Islands, from the Klohus, Slum, and Hamelko, or Comox First Nation? It's funny, I've been asked why forest gardens show up in certain spots and, and not others, like all the territories that you've just mentioned. And really, it's a researcher bias. It's only where I've worked and where my colleagues have worked. Since the publication of our last article, I've gotten a lot of emails like, oh, I think that's happening here. And it's tough to get to all these places. While Armstrong has not specifically studied the Discovery Islands, much of what she said should be applicable here. She's familiar with Judith Williams' book, Clam Gardens, Aboriginal Mariculture on Canada's West Coast. Clam gardens are showing up everywhere, which of course is a type of, of mariculture cultivation. And so it would make sense that if folks are managing the uh, intertidal in such extensive and long-lasting ways that they would be also doing the same with plants. Intertidal marsh gardens are another phenomena that have been studied and looked at. Those are, are kind of these intertidal, upper tidal systems of root cropping, managing the landscape for things like springbank clover, Pacific silverweed, and wild rice root are a lot more common where you guys are. That would be another flag. I'm trained in archaeology and historical ecology, and historical ecology is more of a, a research program, an idea of how to understand landscapes and the history of them. And, and of course, that history isn't just limited to understanding biophysical processes, but also cultural ones. And so a historical ecologist will look at a contemporary landscape like a forest and say, how did it get this way? And people are as much a part of that process. I started out looking at one species of plant, so hazelnut, which is one of the only native nut shrubs in British Columbia. It was used for all sorts of purposes. I was, it's like the Swiss army knife of the plant world. So it has all sorts of medicinal properties. In addition to, of course, the nut is a valuable food source. You can harvest a lot of it and you don't have to process it. It can stay relatively good. If you store it in a cool, dark place, you can have nuts all year kind of thing. 
it's it's an important textile and technology. Shoots are used in weaving and bow construction. The root produces a blue dye. It's just this very versatile plant. I was looking at the distribution of it in British Columbia. And Nancy Turner, my mentor and colleague, was keenly aware of this disjunct population in the north. It was growing where it shouldn't be. And we know that from elders like Marion Dixon, well, Chaco, she's a Inklakatmach elder that I've worked with. And she always talked about it was her job to transplant hazelnut. So with her family, with her grandparents, when she was young, when the 30s, 40s, she would go around transplanting hazelnut. That was part of their act of landscape management. Looking at the disjunct population in the north, though, uh, it became apparent that it was probably transplanted a long time ago. So we looked at some of the linguistic data, you know, the terms for hazelnut being borrowed from the south to the north and probably even borrowed. Um, the shoots were borrowed or the nut was borrowed and transplanted long distances where hazelnut was showing up in the north tended to be near archaeological village sites. You wouldn't see it anywhere else on the landscape except at village sites here in and around Terrace and in Kitslas and Kitsum-Kalem territories. Then it became apparent pretty quickly that hazelnut was part of a larger modified landscape that included things like Pacific crabapple, red elderberry, highbush cranberry, wild rice root, wild onion, uh, wild ginger, all this, this storehouse of all the plants that people are kept talking about as being ethnobotanically important. And those things grow in the wild, certainly on their own, but it was rare to see them all together in one spot and right beside archeological villages. And so that kind of became the forest garden concept is these plants tended near the home, all ethnobotanically salient in one form or another. The test case for that was the forest garden in Kitsum-Kalem territory. And that had been identified prior by an anthropologist named Jim McDonald. He wasn't a botanist, he was an anthropologist, but he knew that village had something weird going on with the plants. So I ended up working with him. We identified these two sites in Kitsilis Canyon and Kitsum-Kalem Canyon and presenting at conferences and telling colleagues about this. The sharp ones would say, I think that's going on here too. So we'd go down to Coast Salish territory with my colleague, Morgan Ritchie. And sure enough, at this complex village landscape of Chehalis, we located more forest gardens. It's kind of steamrolled from there. We've been working with a lot of nations who are certainly interested, not just in the legacy of these places, which is important. How big were they? How old are they? But the kind of reoccurring theme I've gotten in this collaborative research with nations is that the, the keen interest is how do we bring them back? How do we start cultivating these places again and start, you know, harvesting from these places again? And so that's been a big part of the research as well, that kind of scientific archaeological questions, but just as important is the reclamation of these places as well. This particular landscape where we're documenting the forest gardens is just between the confluence of the Chehalis and the Harrison and Harrison Lake. How long have these forest gardens been around? What we do as historical ecologists and archaeologists is look at multiple lines of evidence to make sense of these places. This is something that I've been working on very intently with my lab. When you're trying to date any ecosystem, typically you can only go as far back as the oldest living species or the oldest living individual. 
So if you have a conifer forest dominated by thousand-year-old cedars, it's very easy to core a tree and say, okay, we know that this tree has been here for X amount of time. With perennial species, fruit trees and shrubs like in forest gardens, they don't have a long living life above ground. Uh, A single hazelnut shoot will live 60 to 70 years old. It dies back, but it has other shoots growing at the same time. So the root crown of the hazelnut could be 5,000 years old, but we have cored them at numerous sites in the Kitzlis Canyon, which is Simshan territory up near Terrace. The oldest crab apple was 140 some years old. And so we know at least that old. In the case of New Chalmuth territory on the west coast of Vancouver Island, we have ethnographic records. So early settlers like Gilbert Sprout in the 1840s recorded that natives are as careful of their crab apple orchards as we are of ours. And so we know that the cultivation of these things at least predates that. The sites themselves are, are extremely hard to date. There are some proxies. So another example would be in Kitzlas, the same Simshan forest garden. We, as archaeologists, dig holes in the ground. We recovered some plant remains. And those plant fossils that include things like hazelnut, crabapple, Rubus species, vaccinium species, all the things that grow in forest gardens we've dated to 400 years ago. And at another site in Coast Salish territory, we were able to date to 600 years ago. Those are riddled with sampling biases and all sorts of issues. So we can't say for sure, but it's likely that these uh, cultivation practices without question predate settler colonialism and, and probably extend a bit deeper into the past than we currently have dates for. But that's certainly something we're really busy looking at. I think there's a lot of interest in how longstanding these practices are, not just for scientific purposes, but also communities are really interested. So it's kind of a running question that we'll keep digging into, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a tentative date to when the transmission of some of these crops could have occurred? Oral histories and oral narratives are key. A good example is soapberry on the central coast. So soapberry is more of an interior plant, but it shows up around New Hulk territory. And there's stories of Raven bringing that plant over very early, early on. So much earlier than settler colonialism. The example of hazelnut, when we look at the paleobiolinguistic data, which is a fancy word for how language has evolved and in concordance with the landscape. So the Gixan word for hazelnut, skans ek. Uh, skan means any shrub or woody plant. Ek is the term that refers specifically to the nut. That is the exact same term as the Proto-Salish word. So the Hulkamalum, Hulkaminum languages before they kind of dispersed and became their own dialects or their own languages, there was a proto-Salish where they were all kind of related. And that's estimated to be around two to 3,000 years old. And that's where that term comes from. We don't have the conclusive data. We are doing genetic analyses right now or genomic analyses on hazelnut to, to kind of look at the rate of movement where we could maybe time some of these events. But certainly it's something that would maybe extend into the the very deep past. There's all sorts of 
examples of Pacific crabapple, where it's a very coastal species, but Gixan families commonly moved them towards the interior. And this is again noted in oral texts that to, to predate settler colonialism by quite a bit. There are some scholars who think that perhaps the Malus fusca, the crabapple species, it's most similarly related to Siberian crabapple. So it's not like the crabapple that we see. There's three other native species of crabapple and they grow in Eastern North America. This one, some people have contemplated whether or not it was brought over with the earliest migrations of people from over the Bering Strait. People have been moving back and forth for millennia. I'm not touting the Beringia theory here. People were, were interacting between, you know, places like New Zealand and South America long before settler colonials arrived. But it would make sense that people were moving plants, that they were moving all sorts of other things, whether that's through trade or gift giving. I want to make sure folks know that it's not like I went out and did this research and discovered forest gardens. These places have been known by Indigenous communities, by folks who lived in the same place for thousands of years. A lot of the stories that I've been able to put down on paper around forest garden management, elders have always talked about old villages being good places to hunt or good places to harvest. There's this understanding that these places exist. Scientists are just catching up. Our research is, is really filling in those scientific gaps with the public. It's not by any means a, a recent discovery. And, and added to that, this research is never done alone. There's lots of other people that are involved, folks like Alex McAlvey. He's a botanist at the New York Botanical Garden, and he's done a lot of work with me on this. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Chelsea Geralda Armstrong about the forest gardens and orchards which British Columbia's indigenous population appear to have been cultivating for thousands of years. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. <laughs>